Okay. If everyone's in a good spot, um, then we'll get started. Sound good? Emotionally. <laughs> We're gonna have therapy right after this talk. So <laughs> Yeah, maybe Alice can lead us in yoga afterwards. That would be great. Hey everybody, welcome back to Where Are the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. In this case, rewatch means it's all spoilers all the time. We bring up everything from the end to the beginning and back again. If you have not finished the series, please go back and do so first and then come join us. We have another very special interview today. This is Beep, and you're about to hear Cece and I discuss 408 Demons with the Scab King, Todd Stashwick, the witness herself, Allison Down, creator and showrunner Terry Metalis, and the writer of this episode, Sean Tretta. As always, I will not keep you. Please enjoy. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us um, today to discuss Demons, which is also known as the episode that broke all of us. We have with us. <laughs> Some more than others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we have with us um, Beheady, our beloved deacon, Todd Stashwick, um, Olivia, Allison Down, and co-creator and showrunner Terry Metalis, and the writer of the episode, Sean Tretta. Um, just for folks listening at home, we are recording on April 19th in the middle of an actual pandemic, and all of these folks were kind enough to make time in the middle of everything that is going on to give folks something to listen to at home, and we really appreciate it. So thank you so much. When Chris Monfett was on to talk about legacy, he talked about sort of the challenges of producing a one-off Western. And as I was watching, re-watching this episode, I was thinking, what was it like to produce a one-off medieval episode in Europe? <laughs> so just wondering if you guys had sort of any initial thoughts re-watching it. Um, well, I, I will say I, I saw a lot of castles uh, in, in Prague. We uh, we probably looked at about I don't know fifteen or so. Um, same with churches. It was you know we, I think I spent the scouting for this probably about ten days just on the road with uh, you know the our our production team over there trying to find these places and uh, but uh, it was you know it's beautiful there they have so many and it was just a matter of like finding which uh, place was the best for the little specific pieces we need. Yeah, what can you tell us about the actual locations? Because they really are stunning in this episode. Um, so, and in, in, of course, I, I can't find the name of the church that we shot at, but there's an interesting story about that. But the castle, I believe, was called Privaclat, uh, where Nicodemus's castle was. Um, and you saw the courtyard there where they shot the sort of uh, acolytes that had been uh, stuffed. But... Yeah, I mean, you know, in in Prague, you you know, you drive around, and then all suddenly, you come upon these beautiful castles on these hills, and there's all sorts of like, uh, you know, buildings and things attached to them that are are modern. So you're always like shooting around things like that. The church where we eventually found the machine was a great find, and and the reason uh, we had been looking at so many Catholic churches because there's so many Catholic churches there, and uh, just nothing sort of fit what we need and we also had a problem is that we couldn't none of them would let us do a beheading inside of it 
some of them wouldn't even let us do a beheading outside of it. So we were like, well, maybe we'll shift the scene outside to a courtyard and we'll shoot like a courtyard somewhere else. And uh, it was, there was just so much red tape and you had to get approval from like the, you know, the like, like people were like calling the Vatican to like find a place that we could do this. And our, um, our scouts over there found this place. And the reason we were able to do everything there was because it had been built hundreds of years ago. And I think it was like the pet project of like whatever King's, his uh, son-in-law was in charge of this, right? And apparently he wasn't like very bright because it was a commissioned Catholic church and they built it. And I don't know how long it took them to build it. But once they were finished, they went to go, you know, have the, the christening or whatever. And they realized they had built it in the wrong place. So they were just like, oh, well, forget that. It's dead to us. And it was sort of just abandoned and forgotten. And it's been in some state of restoration over the years. Um, There's actually, you can't see it in the show, but there's a net along the ceiling to prevent the the roof from crumbling and killing you. But uh, that place was awesome. And we didn't have to deal with any of the the Catholic Church rules or anything like that because it was sort of, this um you know like like it says in the story it was sort of this unconsecrated place oh wow that's amazing were there any as you guys were thinking about what you wanted this episode to look like were there any particular inspirations either historical or from other films or tv when you're like okay we're doing the medieval episode what do we want this to look like um i mean and and, and, i you know i'm sure terry can speak to this too but this was um this was a big leap for us. And it was like, you know, it would be great to be able to go that far back and, um, and, and, you know, see that kind of imagery, but it was also like, if we don't do it well, it's going to be bad. And so, and, and, and similar to the Western too, I mean, season four, you know, when we did like, you know, cause we, we produced the Western in Toronto and that was literally, you know, you're on a street and if you turn around, there's like a highway and build like, we had to be so careful to sort of like frame out things that didn't fit area, uh, didn't fit the era. And, you know, the stuff in Prague was, you know, obviously easier, but it was season four was about us taking those leaps and like, okay, we're going to like really go for um, this thing. I I thought it was fun. You know, I really, you know, it wasn't, didn't really uh, work out, but I I had this sort of like dream of, uh, you know, when we're in the medieval village to see, you know, like uh, seven or eight, you know, little people run by as like an homage to the other Gilliam time travel movie, Time Bandits. Um, <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, can we please do this? And it just, it didn't work out. We didn't, you know, have really? the money and stuff like that. But that that was something we, uh, you know, th- there's all these those little things in there that you're like, uh, you're pulling from. Time Bandits was uh, was obviously one of them. The only thing I would say is it's the thing we needed to look the absolute best um, with the, with the exhaustion of shooting it last in the series, you know. So, for instance, I mean, this is the first image of season four is uh, is those knights going after those elder primaries, and we shot it like last <laughs> after we had already shot the finale. After we were used to fourteen hour days, um, so you're at peak exhaustion at probably one of the single most important um, parts of the series. And so I just remember being just wiped and 
exhausted and crazy and uh it was hard for all and it was the most emotional because you know i think uh i think todd's last day was i think was also allison's last day and so you're dealing with saying goodbye to family members and then the next day you got to get up at 5 a.m and and go to some bridge and do this all over again so it was it was particularly exhausting um but i for one I'm glad we did not do that time bandits thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I want to jump in, of course, into we, we have so many great character moments in this episode and mythology moments, but just because it looks so amazing, I was wondering if you guys had any stories or thoughts behind the costumes because they look amazing. Like uh, Olivia in particular, medieval witness, like armor and the mask. It's, it all just looks so good. Um, and I imagine it might've been a day where you're like, this is really fun. And this is my job, but maybe also this is really heavy. And how do people fight in this stuff? So do you guys have any um, thoughts or just stories about putting on these amazing costumes? I think Allison yeah. probably the most of the stories of all of us. Cause we, we, we started to, God, Allison, didn't we do that like four months? We started that process before we even went there, right? By like four months. Oh, yeah. It was kind of, it was an ongoing process throughout season four. It'd be called two wardrobe fittings. And it would be like just a black, like tights and a black, you know, with sort of these like fabric pieces over them and pictures and everyone talking and pointing at me. And, you know, I would just kind of stand there. And uh, and then it would move on to, you know, you would meet uh, a few amazing people were involved um, and, you know, each piece would be fitted and then another layer would go on and that, you know, would be shown pictures. And there were about five or six wardrobes sitting in Toronto before we even went to Europe. And then uh, there were a few in Prague right when I got there. That was like the first thing I, w- I literally got off the plane and went to a wardrobe fitting and then like a horse training um, so that I could make sure I could ride a horse in the witness mask, uh, the medieval witness mask. And and I think it was leather, right? That was made to look like armor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I forget. Some of the, and uh, it was just the, in like it, the details and everything. And it took a while to get me dressed each day. There was something that particularly like when I was horse training. I horse trained in Toronto and I horse trained in Prague, but I didn't horse train with the outfit and the giant sword that I had to wear. And so there was one scene where you see um, Olivia as the witness. It's like the camera comes in and it's this big introduction and she gets off the horse and she saunters over to the, the primaries. And I had not rehearsed getting off a horse in all that gear and I could not get off the horse um, properly. It was really not very witnessy um, of me and, and like, and I hadn't rehearsed with a giant sword. And so I just remember Carrie spending a lot of time trying to like, show me how to stab somebody with this giant sword. And I'm like, dude, sword is enormous. And he's like, no, you got to do it like this. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I would try it. And he's like, no, you got to do it like this. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't can't properly stab this guy with this giant sword so it was just but um i mean i just felt like a real badass uh, every time i put the outfit on you know when you get to wear stuff like that as a person or an actor you know 
Yeah. I'm just trying to picture Terry showing you how to stop because it's convincing how you run him through. <laughs> I, 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 I think they had to use a shorter sword. It was outside the castle when I first uh, meet um, Anderson. Oh, and, yes, I do. Uh, and then I have to, yeah, and I go and I stab and I had to like do a special like step in and, and you're like, it's like this. And I'm like, what? I, okay. And I'm trying to do it and just a look of disappointment on uh, Terry's face. <laughs> I just could not get it well, right. Um, uh, as Sean, Sean will tell you, I did carry a broadsword in the writer's room as threat. <laughs> <laughs> as just a demonstration of power that uh, <laughs> the, pen, the pen was hardier. Yeah. We yes. had far less uh, writers season four than we had season three, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> this day, Chris Montet an arm. I, I don't know how to, what to tell you, but things got out of here. <laughs> well, Allison, I, you know, I was noticing, it's funny when you said like you feel like a real badass because Olivia has a real swagger in this episode you know mm. if you if you kind of step back this episode is a real um like the nadir for our heroes and then for olivia the last time you were on you were talking about how you know so much of early season four was olivia kind of having to grow into this position and having a little bit of imposter syndrome and being questioned and this episode feels like she is like owning it. And it kind of feels like you're at Olivia's, like she has everything she's ever wanted. She's got Andrews on his knees, like worshiping her. And so were you sort of thinking about bringing that kind of swagger, like Olivia's at her full strength in this episode? For sure. And to be honest with you, uh, that outfit, cape, swords, makeup, boots, environment, all helps with that. Like if I was just kind of coming on and like, you know, a little blazer and it, I, don't, I don't really think it would have the same effect but it all the costume really informs that and makeup really informs that and environment and so I think it just for me as an actor it was very natural once that all the medieval gear got on I mean how can you not kind of embody that and step into that role so as an actor it was very easy because everybody else made it easy for me, uh, writing and direction and, and environment. And, you know, I know Todd took a lot of pictures of me in the church in various poses, um, you know, that I still have, you know, looking powerful. <laughs> so it really was just a lot of, of that. And, and, and the writing, you know, I mean, I had such amazing words in, in that. So it was just everybody made it very easy for me to embody that. Yeah. So obviously this is this the reason why this episode crushes everyone is because it's the end, at least of this deacon. Um, it's the end of his yeah. life. It's the end of his character journey. And I, we'd love to hear both sort of from Terry and Sean, maybe first. How do you guys like when do you sit around when you're sitting around in the writer's room and you're like, who are we gonna kill off? And how can we make it hurt? <laughs> <laughs> and how do we want to end, you know, in some ways, I know we're going to see him again, and I know it's going to be a reset, but but this is really landing Deacon's arc. Um, and we'll get to that scene, but I, I mean, I think hopefully you can tell from audience reactions to it, it really landed. Um, so sort of what was your thought process about picking out like, all right, we got to kill off Deacon. <laughs> and how are we going to, how are we going to bring his story to an end? Well, uh, I think you have to look at it as a whole, the, the, the season, 
and what you want, what do you want to be feeling at that, at that time? Right. So you're at, you're, you're almost at the end of, I mean, you're, you're in episode eight, if right. So this is the point where you want to feel the absolute worst, worst. So that by the time you're, your finale comes, which we always envisioned as, you know, the moment we strike back, you know, if you really want to be cheering on our, our folks, then they ha- had to experience tremendous loss. Um, and so, you know, there's probably no one more beloved than, than uh, Deacon and Jennifer, but we needed Jennifer to keep, to keep going. Cause we know she dies with, you know, old Jennifer. And then in the next episode, you have Hannah. So it was like this double punch right before the two-hour movie where it's, where, you know, we have to raid the Death Star. So when you look at it that way, that's kind of the build, big building blocks. And then you look at emotionally where everybody is. And, you know, we knew we wanted to bring Deacon back for the last battle. You couldn't have a finale without Deacon in it. And it starts to just organically come together. And then, and then this temple story, which was just this, this temple outside of time was an idea that I had since season one, which is the climb steps ring the bell bit from uh, episode nine of season one, you know, they, they, it, it's the puzzle pieces just start to come together. So you put those, those things that you want up on a, on a board and you try and figure out how to get there. Um, the execution is a lot harder uh, as Sean will tell you. No pun intended. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this, you know, by season four, I mean, with the, it was just harder. Each one of these episodes were just so much harder because of the demands, you know, you needed to get to. I can, I'll let Sean speak to that. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, on, you know, and rewatching it again last night, just remembering the story gymnastics that we were having to do just to tell this one. I mean, we were cramming so much story into this episode. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, of course, like we're going to end on a uh, on a big emotional moment. And I think, you know, I, you know, what Terry was saying was absolutely correct. It's like, you know, your highs are only as powerful as your lows. And, and, Deacon was a character, I think, that we were constantly talking about. And I think it's just to, to, you know, to Todd's credit of making that enduring character. This was always someone who, you know, was expendable at some point, you know, when we needed, we feel like when we felt there was like, we needed an emotional punch or something like, well, maybe Deacon gets it. And I think, you know, this was very, very late in terms of, you know, taking you know, of Deacon dying because he had become such a beloved character. And, um, you know, we, we, we held on to him obviously, you know, as long as we could. And then ultimately to the end. And I think, you know, we were having so many conflicts with the actor, uh, the actor, Todd, very, (laughs) very difficult. He's very difficult, very, very difficult to work with his demands. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have. We're going to do another podcast with just his writer, his his contract writer of his list of demands. Uh, was, we're going to get Allison to read it from top to bottom. Yeah. <laughs> voice. People would definitely, yeah, people would tune in for that just as like a relaxation <laughs> podcast. I would listen to Allison read literally anything. <laughs> well, so Todd, I know that this isn't quite 
you know, you filmed this episode last, you've already filmed the finale, you know, you come back. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a time travel story. And even though, man, you guys, you guys really sell the death in this one, you really make us, you know, that it's going to stick, and we're not going to see him again. It's still you've been on this journey with this character. What was your a reaction when you read sort of like, this is how Deacon goes out. And what did you want to bring to your performance in, in terms of sort of conveying what Deacon was feeling, sort of his character growth um, and, and portraying sort of the end of his story? Well, it's fascinating about what they did with this guy is they took this guy who was essentially a general in his own army. And then over the course of the four years, he loses his army he loses his his status and he has to fall in line and become a soldier in someone else's someone else's army with Cole and, and Jones and Cassie kind of being the the head of that spear and so in many ways he went out like a soldier he he took the sword so that the the generals could lead the rest of the army forward and he knew that i mean there's that moment he becomes a soldier so that then later he can become the general again and, and bring his army to help raid Titan. So thematically, that's, it's a, it's such a gorgeous arc. It's, 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 you, you take everything away from this guy to the point where, you know, you're talking about costume earlier. There was a point where my only costume was a pair of pants. Like he went from just jacketed up and guns and everything to them being reduced and tightened to just a pair of pants. Um, and then building me back up with the cape and the cloak and all that. It was, it was a wonderful, uh, costume to wear to put him back together. Emotionally, Todd Stashwick going through that. I, uh, yeah, that was a hard day. And it was funny rewatching it with my wife last night as, well, uh, they chose the least weepy take because it, it was much more of a stoic performance. But I, and I've said this before, when when I'm saying goodbye to all those people, uh, to Jones and Cassie and Cole and Jennifer in that line, I, I was literally, that was my last shot of the series was on my knees ready to get my head taken off. And so I'm looking at these people, like Terry said, this family that I have been with for four seasons and I'm, I'm saying goodbye to them and saying I would do this all again. So there really was no quote unquote acting. I did not have to go far to feel the emotion of that moment. And I'm not far from feeling it right now. Um, But (laughs) he, uh, he, so there was a lot of like just big gloppy tears on my face at times. And then, and then when I look at the take that they chose, it was, it was the most stoic uh, soldier like take. And it made so much more sense uh, for the storytelling. And we did so many versions and and, uh, as as the speech where I interrupt, where I interrupt uh, the witness, there was a very early, early takes were very Bill Murray with me just like, trying to just wave my arms and cause distraction, being an a-hole. Uh, and then Terry's like, you do realize you're about to get your head cut off. I'm, so so play that fear of you know the monster at the end of the book as you're racing towards it. Play the fear of that while still understanding what you have to accomplish here, and that's stalling so that they can get the vest to Cole so that he can save the day, you are going to f- literally fall on the sword so that they can actually s- 
down the road fix everything. Um, so that was such a, a great tweak of direction and a great uh, tweak of performance for myself to still try to be the cocky asshole in face of impending death. Um, but emotionally, you go from this guy who was, I'm not going to say Deacon was in it for himself. He was always supporting like 200 people and making sure that people were alive, but he was a greedy bastard doing it, uh, killing other people to, to keep their comfy lifestyle. But to go to this altruistic place by the end of it, where he's willing to give it all up and he knows it's coming from the point when he's in Titan with Jones and he says, you're going to have to take this place someday. You're going to need an army, which is when his past was changed and he had these new memories of where things are going because of what he was told by old Jennifer. But yeah, it was a doozy because uh, I think on that day uh, I stuck around to watch Allison's last moment as well. And then I literally left that set uh, and went to the airport to fly home from Prague. And that was the end of my 12 monkeys career. It was uh, it was a big ass day. Yeah, it was big. Yeah, one of the things it's such a beautiful. I mean, just in terms of the setting. I mean, all of it. It feels maybe because I just watched all of the Lord of the Rings movies, but you know, it feels epic mm-hmm. in that way. And yet, as cool as all of that is, it the the simplicity of the writing of for them. I do it again, you know, and the and the delivery, that's the moment that sticks with everyone, right? I mean, that's that's the gif everybody shares with each other when they want to make people cry because they're mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, it, to me, it, it, that it kind of, it's, I think it's so important thematically for why we're cheering for these people, but also just kind of expressing something even more meaningful than that about why people can overcome obstacles is when they're doing things for other people. It's just, it's a really beautiful moment. And I just think it shows something that this show always did, always did so well. You know, even if you had these crazy stakes saving the world, you still make the time for quiet moments. Well, that's, like why that. you're, that's why you're saving it. I mean, it's, it's because of those moments. It's for those moments. It's these, it's for those connections and relationships. And so if not that, then what are we, what are we saving it for? Right. Allison, right before I, well, we should just close the loop on this scene since we're on it. Um, one of the things that I was struck rewatching this episode was the emotion that we saw um, on Olivia's face as she's walking in to see this weapon that she thinks is meant to destroy her. And I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, because I didn't expect when I was rewatching it to be sort of hit with what this moment means for Olivia, but I really was this last time. And it just seemed very emotional and not just triumphant, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it was very emotional. I remember that moment. It was uh, two or three in the morning. Um, and I, uh, to this day, and I don't, I, I tried on the day to give what I felt you know, David wanted and, and Cherry uh, wanted as well. But I didn't I, I didn't think that I delivered just like as an actor, because I was just, you know, having trouble because it was like it, it, it was my almost last scene. It was a huge emotional time for me, um, just as Allison as well, knowing that, you know, when I'm seeing this weapon, I'm also kind of looking at the last few few scenes, few takes, you know, 
as Olivia. And I knew how big the stakes were for, for Olivia to see this thing that she has been chasing for so long. Because she's not immune to emotion, you know, she's definitely, you know, the witness is certainly not a, not a robot. It's, it's that, you know, emotion, sense of purpose that, that becomes passion that, you know, that, that drives her. And so to see this thing, you know, of course she's going to be figuratively on her knees, um, to be this close to it. But I don't, it's one of, it's one of the, the times I just didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think that I really, you know, delivered, um, as an actor, you deliver. So it's, uh, it's so weird because yeah, in, in watching it last night, that moment when you shudder, when you realize that you've just, you know, thwarted their plans to destroy you, is is something I had forgotten, and it's it was the most uh, or one of the most effective moments of that episode because it it it, yeah. it brought humanity to, to a character who could have been so arch, and yet like you actually feel that relief for her mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. and you improvise this moment where you put the mask on the bell as a, as a as a statement of this is mine i did it and that was not in the script and, and we were no. it was so cool we were like oh we got to get a special shot close up of that because that was such a great idea so everything that you felt was wrong because you were awesome well thanks you know uh, well i appreciate that i am but i i think that's the thing one of the things i love about olivia is that she had so much humanity there you could have turned her into an evil robot like that could have happened but um she did have these moments of humanity even in um was it season one episode was it 11 or 12 when she sees the baby she walks in and she sees all of the the baby. It was uh, and, thirteen, right? Oh, thirteen. Yes, and and she, you know, um, has a moment of of emotion of you know, it just overwhelmed um, with the emotion of seeing these, um, you know, the the fruits of her her labors. Um, it's uh, I, I love I love that about Olivia that she was allowed to be a human being. And there's a scene, you know, I always think of it. It always pops into my head. What what uh, Mission Impossible was that where Philip Seymour Hoffman was the the bad guy? Three. Um, Mission Impossible three. Three and and he they're on the airplane and he's talking about uh, Michelle Monaghan's character and he's talking about how he's going to hurt her and he's going to and you know I've never for, yeah I've never forgotten it because there was so much almost emotion or passion to it that that's what grabbed me not the words. Not the environment, not Tom Cruise standing there, you know, and it's this, but the his delivery of it, his the almost emotion, sincerity behind it. Um, I think that's what can sell a quote bad guy uh, more than anything, and that's something that you know credit the writers and and um, direction and and of Twelve Monkeys is that Olivia always had that, and I, I love that about her. Yeah. And in, in, in just in the writing, you know, when Olivia is giving her, you know, the good guys are down and out and the bad guy is delivering, you know, we've seen it in a lot of mm-hmm. movies. But what makes it so interesting is she points out, 
you could have lived forever in the Red Forest and you've been fighting to die. And as the audience, I mean, you know, it brings it back. It just ties so beautifully, you know, because obviously it doesn't just mean in that moment, whether they prevail or not, that's in some ways they're fighting to live in other ways they're fighting for an end um, as the finale will sort of bring home. And I thought that that was, I mean, particularly on, there's a lot of lines in this episode where you guys were very sneaky with your foreshadowing and mm-hmm. your double meanings. Um, but that one was just a great one to think about thematically because it just helps you sort of remember what Olivia's point of view is. You know, she thinks that she's fighting for something that's good. Absolutely. It, that, and then that's, you bring up a wonderful point of another thing I loved is that, I I found it hard to really find a right or a wrong really with anybody. I think, you know, I mean, our heroes make some pretty questionable uh, decisions in order to quote, save the world. Um, And uh, as does Olivia. So really I love that it walks the line of who, who's the bad guy really. The Red Force sounded pretty cool to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Terry and Sean, this episode you know, it's obviously it's a huge mythology payoff, um, and it and it tells us it, it fills in so much in terms of uh, prime. You know, you've had these elder primaries who have been working back, you know, throughout time to build this weapon, and then on the opposing side, you're kind of tying together with with Andrews going all the way back to season one with the Chechnya episode of of people who had symbols and kind of tying that all together. I, but I imagine that you maybe at some point may have written more that could probably fill a graphic novel about these two sort of opposing armies. Um, so I was just wondering if there was, you know, things in earlier drafts or ideas you all consider to sort of fill in these two opposing, you know, essentially armies that have been battling each other. Yeah. If I, if I just may with this. Um, so uh, we were, you know, you know where I'm going to go with this? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, all right. So, well, uh, probably not. But uh, so um, we were shooting. Um, we were at the uh, manor where we were shooting stuff for 406 for Di, uh, Di Glocka. And uh, somebody, I got a message and it was like, you need to get on the phone with Donald Sumpner. He wants to talk about his character. Now, Donald Sumpner from game of thrones he played you know the alpha primary the guy who tells you know olivia she's but a fool draped in metal right mm-hmm. and so i get on the phone with donald sumner who's you know very older you know he's an older gentleman and he's like so tell me about my character right and i was having to explain the entire mythology of 12 Mike, and he's like but i need to understand more and i'm like you really don't want to this is going to take a very, very long time, um, you know, because he was he was looking for his motivation, and you know, it, it, yes, it was it was just so much of 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 trying to balance like uh, all the you know, well, you know, he, he's a primary, and uh, you know, and then he's, uh, but then you know, there's these people who've traveled. It was it was just I was blowing this guy's mind and not answering. Like the more. I spoke the less he understood. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I thought you were going to talk about. Because uh, there was a moment where, where I sent, I remember saying, I was like, can you just get on the phone? Because what was interesting about when we offered the role to Don, Donald Sumter, he said no. And then I said, <laughs> I did something I'd never do before. I was like, call, I told Cassie, I'm like, call him back and offer it again. 
And they were like, what? I was like, just offer it again. Say, we really want them. And they're like, okay. And they come back and they're like, the agent said, no, I'm like, get a hold of Donald Sumter and say, please do it. And they call back and they're like, yeah, he said, yes, he's in. He just wants to have this talk. And so I was like, wow, that was cool. And then I sent Sean off to do that. And I remember thinking, oh, is that a good idea? Because, you know, Sean has very intricate as ideas about the Red Forest, as we all know. And I'm like, uh, I remember saying, I'm like, Sean, I remember just be really basic. It's paradise. And this guy does, it's paradise for the villains. He doesn't think it's paradise. He thinks it's hell. And then I just remember, I was like, and then you came back, you're like, well, I don't know if he got it or not. But I will say Donald Sumter was pretty extraordinary in the fact that that was, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning was his start time, you know? And, uh, I mean, he knew his lines better than probably any actor that's ever been on this show. This giant monologue about what would, was gibberish to him. He's like, no, no, I think I get it enough. Um, it, it was it was pretty extraordinary. But the other thing, um, Sean, that I think you should talk about is when Tina says graphic novels, I mean, you could very well do uh, an Andrews Drews graphic novel. In, in fact, the original script, I think, the first 19 minutes, I think, was like, was Andrews, was all about him. And it's one of those things where you really yeah. wish we had a 13 or more episode arc that we could explore that character so he didn't just come and go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the one thing about, you know, this episode is we are, we are jamming a lot of story in, but watching, you know, like, oh, I wish we would have done, you know, uh, a little bit more on the chorus Nicodemus stuff and like the Andrew stuff for sure, because we did you know, uh, we were trying to tie it back to like the origin of the 12 monkeys name. Um, is that, is that, is the cut scene on the Blu-rays Yeah, for the Andrews? Uh, okay. You know, when there was a scene where Andrews was a kid, which we actually shot where, um, that, you know, Andrews is at this like sort of like medieval carnival as a kid. And, uh, he sees this monkey in a cage and he sort of equates, this caged monkey with this, you know, this affliction that he feels is demonic. And so that's why he draws or, or paints the symbol in blood is that that is, those are the sort of the demons in his head are personified by these monkeys, which are primary. So the, you know, it was, so we were, we were trying to, you know, everybody asked like, why is it called the army of the 12 monkeys? And this, you know, we were going to answer that, but I think one, I think it was just a lot to try to, to jam in and and there's probably something fun and sort of the mystery living a little bit longer as to why, you know, that is, but um, yeah, there, this could have been a whole other, you know, movie with that guy. Yeah. And so, and just an understanding because these, these primaries that we see in this episode certainly seem much more in command of their abilities than any of that we have seen throughout the show. And so is there sort of a mythology explanation for that as to how they assembled and, and seem to be able to kind of control their visions and interpret their visions better than, I mean, even Jennifer and, and, and other primaries we've seen over the other seasons? The, the way I looked at it was they didn't have a modern day society to tell them they were crazy. So they, they were able to embrace their... Uh, perception of time and go deeper into it and, and come to a place of comfort. And, you know, being that far back, they were just stronger uh, with the force, I guess. Yeah, so yeah. 
so that's kind of um that was kind of the idea because he's very eloquent that Donald Sumter. Yeah. Well, and so what was um maybe it's just because I'm watching this in the middle uh rewatch this in the middle of a pandemic where we are unfortunately debating about how much we listen to scientists. Um but there was sort of this theme running throughout it with Nicodemus that as opposed to dismissing primaries as heretics, there's a really lovely scene about how he supported and, and sort of cultivated his daughter's abilities. And you kind of see uh, how that kind of plays out on Jennifer's face as opposed to her father. But I, what was the inspiration for Nicodemus? Because you obviously you have the biblical figure. He seems a little bit like a da Vinci. Um, you have the amazing tiny wooden model of the time machine um, and the witness, which I hope folks caught on their rewatch because it's really cool. Sort of how did you come up with this with this character? I mean, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, we needed, obviously we needed a character to sort of anchor uh, you know, this, uh, the story back in time. And, you know, I, I, I think it just made, you know, it, it was, it was sort of rightfully counterintuitive that we had a character in the past who thought sort of progressively, right. And, you know, Jennifer's experience had, you know, been like constantly people telling her crazy and, and people, people diminishing, you know, disability. And it just felt, uh, interesting to have someone who, you know, just embraced it. And I think there's something also too, like, you know, the kind of the irony of 12 monkeys is that, you know, people seem to know more at the beginning than they do at the end of things. And I think that was part of the interesting thing about the primaries is that, you know, the, they, they saw the, they saw the most before everything went down as opposed to those who like Jennifer, who had been sort of, you know, that power had been sort of diluted down the line, but you know, it just, yeah, it felt, you know, we, we wanted to, we had done so much with primaries and people being persecuted and, and that it just made sense to have someone who like, no, this made sense to me and I acted on it. Yeah. I wanted to turn back to Deacon because he, there are two, particularly on Rewatch, really important character moments, relationship moments. The first is the knife scene between Deacon and Jennifer. And obviously it's really important plot wise. Um, but it also, you know, it's a fan favorite scene because it's a really tender scene between these two friends. And, you know, there's sort of this, there's, it, it kind of reminds me in some ways of, of Jennifer and Cole, that there's this asymmetry between the two of them. Like this is a moment where Deacon knows more than her. And then in the finale, we're going to get, sort of the the mirror image of that where she's having to explain to him. And so just in when you have to sit down and write a scene like this, which is in some ways this kind of culmination of a friendship between two characters. And then Todd, when you have to bring that to life, sort of what were your goals for this scene and what you wanted to sort of land for the audience? So, you know, obviously we're we're doing all the connective stuff and we're having the fun of like, you know, it was it was a it was a tough balance of you know trying to uh, have Deacon you know be sort of present but also know what's going to happen how his character would you know sort of deal with that. There's this weird sort of like reverence for family and for the possibility of things that he's learned throughout you know his course of being with uh, with Cole and Rayleigh and Jennifer that he 
this this appreciation he he's he's gained, and I think you really see that in the scene. But it's just it was a matter of like trying to balance the you know he knows something and he's not really letting on to them, but he's trying to you know tell this uh, basically tell them what's going to happen without sort of spoiling it. Yeah, it's it's what's it? My wife uh, and I watched it last night, and and she's like, "Oh, you're the you're the Doctor Strange of the Avengers here." Mm. Uh, in in, uh, in Infinity War, when he gives up the Time Stone, like he gives up the most important thing to him, because historically speaking, Deacon's knife has gotten him. It's what saved him with the with the uh, with the foreman, and it's it's his brother his brother's knife. He collects back, so knives are his primary weapon and the fact that he's choosing to hand it over a goes oh he knows he's not coming back mm-hmm. to the keen-eyed viewer like you go he's giving up his his main form of defense to well he says to uh to jennifer it's these it's not safe here so you need a weapon but he's disarming himself because he knows he's not fighting back from this point forward because he knows how he's going out. Um, but it's also, again, it's that time stone moment where he's basically looking at, you know, Tony going, this is our one shot. We have this one moment to, to make this all work. And this is where, you know, my, my ball starts picking up its head of steam. This is the first thing that I have to do to really start pushing it towards its, its inevitable yet surprising conclusion between the characters between Jennifer and, and Deacon, uh, not a hard scene to act because I was already given all the subtext of what was coming. So I already had all the thoughts in my head when turning over the weapon and knowing that I can't really tell her, I can just kind of lean into this and why'd you present it all theatrically? Because he's got, there's a lot of, like you were saying, there's a lot of meaning behind this moment, and uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but it wasn't a difficult thing to perform because the the writers gave it to me. It was all there. Yeah, I love that analogy, Doctor Strange. That would that'll now be like the fifteenth thing, <laughs> the fifteenth uh, comparison to Twelve Monkeys as I watch Avengers Endgame. Um, <laughs> um, the other the other scene, which is. Uh, I think it's really interesting just because their relationship has been so fraught um, is the scene between Deacon and Cole. And it's, it, I guess, I guess you can characterize it as a reconciliation. There's that really great deleted scene um, where the conversation goes on for a little bit longer and they kind of acknowledge, you know, we were never going to be brothers, yeah. um, but we were going to be friends. And, you know, both, I guess, for Sean and for Todd, Again, this is, I mean, you know, you're sitting down and writing a scene that's like, how do I tell the end of this kind of, it's been quite a saga going back to season one between, Mm -hmm. between Deacon and Cole with a lot of ups and a lot of downs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the subtext of these things, I think, I think you kind of understand them. And I think the great thing about this show is that, you know, we, we plan things ahead. And we also, uh, you know, we also kept the actors, you know, in, they were very much in the loop of story. So we'd come down to a scene like this and it was very, very rarely did we have to sort of explain, 
the whys of things. I think people, you know, understood and, and, and Todd's one of those guys who, you know, he, he loves the show as much as, as we do. So there was never, you know, they would have great ideas and, and really add things like we talked about with, with, uh, with Allison, with the mast and stuff like that. And so, yeah, in, in a way it's, it's Deacon saying, you know, I'm going to make this tremendous sacrifice for you right now. And he's not asking for anything in return, which I think is really interesting based on where Deacon started. Deacon was a, you know, he was a transactional kind of guy when we first met him, you know, and it was, it was, uh, I'll do something for you. You do something for me. And, um, you know, that's, that's really, uh, that's great when you're, you know, when you're leading by, you know, tyrannical means in life. But in this one, he's, he's making, uh, he's making the ultimate sacrifice and he's not asking any of them for anything in return, which I think is the beautiful thing about those moments. What's, what's fascinating about the construction of the scene. And, and if you look at the, if you look at the, uh, series as a whole, the first time that Deacon and Cole sat down to have a drink, he was asking Cole to do something horrible, which was to, to kill Ramsey. And so then if you look at this is this really encapsulates the journey of I am now willing to I'm asking you to make a sacrifice, a soul sacrifice, uh, Cole, by killing your brother. Uh, and now you're right, Sean. It's like he's Deacon is going, I'm not asking for anything. In fact, I'm giving everything. I'm I'm uh, it's 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 just he's sort of. After all that he went through with Cassie, he's recognizing that that was never a thing. It was never going to be. It was just one night. It was never going to be. It was never going to be anything. Uh, you guys are the your soul couple. Um, he's so he's he's saying goodbye to that. He's he's acknowledging the journey they went through from the first time they had a drink to this very moment. Uh, it bookends their relationship. Yeah. And then certainly lands when you see sort of how desperate Cole is to try and get back. Um, yeah. Yeah. You guys, you guys are all really mean. (laughs) You make us cry a lot. Um, I, I would be, I would get yelled at if I did not ask about the, uh, sort of the, the scene between the alpha primary, um, when he's Mm -hmm. talking to Olivia there, this the the dialogue is so rich in terms of all of the clues you were giving us like so for example when he's calling olivia an abomination slithering through the bowels of causality man like what a line but that's but that's also describes cole right like she's a gen and cole's a gen Mm -hmm. um but the line where he says um that olivia is not the true witness that the true witness who will bring about the red forest fears, loneliness, fears, nothingness. He doesn't say he's not the true witness. (laughs) He just says the true witness. (laughs) And it's funny that you brought this up because I planned on speaking about it. I figured. Um, (laughs) Because it actually betrays why the red forest ending is a terrible ending and you're a soulless creature if you believe in it. Basically, <laughs> what, it's, what he's saying there is we he's he's talking about how selfish the true witness would be because it's afraid. 
So my whole thing is, if you believe Cassie is the true witness who never turned off the machine in Titan, that character never arcs. She makes a selfish selfish decision on behalf of the universe. And I just, I don't see how that's the ending anybody could possibly want. It's a character betrayal. And cue Sean. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, look, you know, here's the thing. It's, you know... Believe whatever you want. He clearly says it. Uh, but I, look, I, I think there there is still an arc for Cassie in that she's someone who would is, you know, devotes her life to, you know, solving, you know, the problems of man. And then she's hit with the biggest problem and she goes through it and she realizes that, you know, sometimes love is the most important thing and that we treasure the people in our lives and what is time if we can't have it be with the people that we love and so i think look the the fun of this show is that and and especially rewatch is that you can watch it and see these moments and be like oh that speaks to this and oh that speaks to that and um you know i think there's there's you know there's beauty in in some of the ambiguity to it but yes, he does, you know, very much say things that uh, lend, you know, credence to the idea that Cassie is the true, the witness. true witness. And I, I say yeah. all, I say all this because, and I was the one who insisted that we can go in there to support the Red Forest theory. I just don't know why you'd want it. <laughs> <laughs> why you'd be like, oh, that. Well, it worked because we're still debating it and it's two years later. (laughs) So I guess good job, question mark, depending on your point of view. (laughs) Well, so I know we're probably running out of time. I have to, I wanted to ask about because I think sort of what, I don't know if you guys notice what people will do to each other is they will just randomly send each other Kelsey Carter's cover of Don't You Forget About Me. Just like to kind of throw like a feels grenade in the middle of someone's day. Um, (laughs) It is beautiful. It is haunting. The whole montage that closes this episode, it's just... it's just a lot of different, both the editing, the song, everything coming together. It really lands an emotional punch. And I was just curious sort of about the story about the idea for this cover. Obviously, Kelsey Carter's contributed so much to the show throughout. But I just wanted to see if you guys had any thoughts well, about that. We we met Kelsey through, I met Kelsey through the Impractical Jokers. I don't know why they knew her. She was an Impractical Jokers fan, and they started tweeting about the show, and then she's like, I started to watch the show. It's amazing. And then I clicked on a thing, and I heard her sing, and I was like, wow, who is that? Um, this particular cover happened in the editing room, um, and at some point, we need to get Drew uh, Nichols, who is Drew and Chris Gay were our two lead editors, but Drew was very influential to the uh, conclusion of this whole thing. And Stephen Barton, who are composer for season three and four, it was an extraordinary thing where we had so much time to post the show and, and our composer was in-house, meaning that we would be in the edit bay and we're like, this isn't working. You know, we couldn't just pull something from Hans Zimmer and make it work. So we'd just be like, Stephen, can we rough something out? And so I just remember seeing him like, what really would work here is 
a really sad cover of Don't You Forget About Me. <laughs> so Drew and I just went next door. We called Kelsey. We're like, could you rough something up? And then um, Steven started. She did. She sent it with like within a half hour, those vocals. And then Steven just, I mean, we had it in like two hours uh, and uh, and put it in. And it was the greatest and coolest thing ever. And we <sighs> built a whole last mon- montage that way. You rarely get uh, uh, as satisfying uh, an editorial experience as those four hours of just sitting there and crafting it and be like, no, it should be a little slower. Okay, no lyrics here. Okay, now the lyrics come back. You know, um, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah, it, it it wrecks me every time because it's one of those, you know, you guys were saying earlier, the finality of of Deacon's death, um, as opposed to other deaths that you know you can go back and undo and whatnot, um, and the urgency to which they are running out of time to try and stop Olivia, that song playing underneath all of them rushing to try and solve this problem shows this it's almost that's the funeral that's the only funeral he's going to get is that if the the song that's playing behind the scene in cassie's head in jen's head and cole's head well they're all trying to solve a bigger problem it is all colored by the loss of the soldier in their army uh yeah i i I can't get through that scene myself. So if trust, trust the grenade, uh, the emotional grenade uh, extends to us as much as it extends to you guys. Good. Cause you know, we'll be like in the grocery store and somebody and they play it and you're like, damn it. (laughs) I mean, you know, one of of the things I think is actually interesting is the first time you watch it, you know, it, it always wrecks me, but, but there's, there's a line, which is again, one of those very sneaky, clues on rewatch where Jones during this montage says, you know, Olivia is the center, the gin created by time travel when Elliot and I opened Pandora's box. And one of sort of the double meanings about don't you forget about me is, you know, with Pandora's box, the thing that's left, you know, this feels like a real trough for our heroes. And you know, Deacon and old Jennifer walking out the end of the episode, that's the hope, you know, that's, that's what's going to come back and kind of help them prevail in the end. And so the song works in on sort of two levels and it's just adds, you know, rewatching the show just adds, always adds more layers of. Well, it also, it also then beautifully sets up the play. The first time we ever hear the original recording of the song is that hopeful triumphant. In the end. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. Yeah. So to yeah. have this melancholy version of it is is, is the bitter before the sweet, you know. It's yeah. also that whole sequence is part of the magic trick, the the hand waving, which is, you know, that song is playing, but and then you're watching Olivia with that mask on step out onto the balcony to those controls, and she's ready to go and has won the war and is is now completely the witness. And then Joan saying, "Well, she's our demon." So mm-hmm. the, the goal, what I mean by the magic trick is you're hiding the next trick, which is unpacked in the, the end of the next episode, which is she's not the demon. Mm-hmm. So you need to fully believe she's the demon so that by the time you realize it's actually Cole, it, it's a surprise. So that's kind of all of the, the, the emotional hand-waving to get you to look one way when we're really going another well, and and to that again, d- with the discussions with with my wife, uh, 
taking that song and the fact that time intentionally left Deacon off the word so that he is a blind spot to the witness. Right. Um, right. He time forgot about him in the in the execution of it, but it's like wink, wink. Don't forget because uh, it's it, he's part of the solution. Yeah. Oh, well, that's such good stuff. Um, really quickly, the last. Um, even though Emily Hampshire isn't on, but that we have a reunion of old Jennifer and Jennifer, and they both have work to do. And one of the wonderful sort of you know, this is a moment you had alpha primaries in the past and building the machine and all of that. But it's Jennifer who going all the way back to the first conversation she ever had back with Cole gets handed from herself uh, that yellow chalk. And then the episode closes much like, um, was it intentional? Like the pilot did with her drawing and kind of that Jennifer kind of crazed laughter. It reminded me of that. Yeah. It's all part of, all part of the package. Yes. Got it. So I didn't know if you had Terry or Sean or anything about sort of bringing those two, you know, bringing old Jennifer back into the story and having them sort of be face to face again. Well, just it's you're just the reminder. I mean, I, I remember the the moment we decided to take them back to 2043 in at the end of season three, you realize you had all those possibilities that you had you had an, another deacon in the West Seven there and you had old Jennifer because she wasn't dead yet. <laughs> it's just, you know, that it, it's one of those unique things you can only do on a show like this or, or specifically this show is you that character still shot by Deacon and still killed. But she can be here and and know the journey now. You know, I, I love that moment where she's like, did you know this was going to happen? And she's like, no. And then I did. And she pulls out the knife. If I may say one thing, um, because you guys know how much uh, not only Jennifer, but Jennifer and Deacon. Uh, mean to me and no Todd I'm not a shipper in that regard <laughs> um, but so my favorite callback in the entire series is is this one with you know reds and blues primary give me yellow I could paint you the world and I think what's so important about to me I mean besides the fact that it came from 102 so like hello amazing is the fact that Jennifer is the one that gives it to herself <laughs> Right. Because so much of her arc, you know, is about like becoming who she's truly meant to be. And yes, she's surrounded by friends and yes, you know, all these things. But in the end, she has to like dig deep down in that primariness and just like accept who she is and accept her role and push herself on. Yeah. 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 I'm glad that that was satisfying because, you know, again, it, it, it's it's something we wanted to be mindful of was, was paying off everything that that came before without feeling forced, you know? So I'm glad that worked. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. I miss this show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, um, we do too. I don't know if you've noticed, a lot of people have been watching it as they shelter in place. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders last night was, yeah. was uh, tweeting about it. And, and then William Gibson. And then William Gibson. I oh know. I was like, holy shit. I mean, if anybody, you know, should see um, <laughs> uh, a witness being jacked into a time stream, it should be William. <laughs> um, so it's interesting because uh, we're Sean and Sean's doing a virtual room right now, and I'm doing one for Star Trek. And my computer, uh, my Zoom camera faces, you know, the back of my office. 
So over my shoulder is the witness. And I would say about 99% of all the production individuals, studio execs, and um, writers have no idea what the witness is. And they just think I'm a psycho with a (laughs) a weird Sith-like. It's not mutually exclusive to me. (laughs) That's true. Oh, thank you guys so much. Um, Todd or Allison, do we ever have, I know that production has sort of, a lot of things are on pause, but is there anything we can look forward to seeing either of you in? Uh, I'm currently in the way back, if you watch that. Oh, yeah. The Ben Affleck film. I saw saw your picture. Yeah. Pictures of you at the premiere. Um, I uh, eventually, when it airs on Netflix, you'll see me in the, series called Ginny and Georgia kind of sprinkled throughout that was very fun role. I did some episodes of uh, LA's finest that I don't think have premiered just yet and I don't even know how to watch that show it's it's on it's on a cable provider but not a channel <laughs> <laughs> do you guys have any shows since everyone's stuck at home that you have particularly enjoyed that you would recommend just before we close out I love Legion. If you haven't watched Legion yet, watch Legion. Oh, I've been watching um, Jack Ryan yeah. lately. I'm almost through season one. We're about to do a Battlestar rewatch. It. Oh, yeah. A lot of people are rewatching Battlestar. Yeah. It, uh, you'll see me in there, Todd. I highly recommend uh, devs on, on FX or Hulu, depending on what you got. Harry, I watched it, just so you know. What'd you think? Um... I have a lot of feelings about it. Oh. I liked it. I did like it. I think if anyone liked Annihilation, they like it in the sense of just like, obviously the way it was filmed and directed. And I I saw a lot of terrible reviews about how slow it was and all that and how it was pretentious and trying to be, you know, it didn't add anything to the sci-fi principles. And I was like, yeah, you guys kind of missed the whole point of what the show was about, but okay. Sean, you Um, take it. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm going to, uh, you know, but, you know, we, y- you know, our evenings are like we have two kids. So it's like, you know, we're watching Bill and Ted for the first time. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, you know, I highly recommend Onward, which was very good. <laughs> yes, yes. I like that. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. You know what is a great movie? Yeah, that's a great, maybe I, my kids for my, for my older ones, a phenomenal rewatch is Friday Night Lights. It is really, really great to rewatch that with kids and rewatching it now that I'm a parent is, it's just, re- it's really good. My 12 year old um, last night asked me if she could watch 12 Monkeys. Mm. And I, I, and we, my wife and I were like, well, we let her watch Stranger Things and she's seen like every Marvel movie. Oh, yeah. So I think I think it's about time she's uh, she she really wants to watch Twelve Monkeys. So uh, she's go. gonna she's gonna dive into that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe you need to live tweet her reactions. <laughs> that would be yeah, very right? entertaining. <laughs> the only thing in mind that she's ever seen is Kim Possible, so it's going to be a big leap. <laughs> uh, but but that's the, also the only thing that any of her friends have seen as well. So. <laughs> I've actually been doing uh, the Marvel movie rewatch. Yeah, so that was great. I haven't yeah. done because uh, my kid is seven. He hasn't seen almost, he's only seen like the last few. And there's stuff that I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen Iron Man 2 or Thor 2, neither of which 
were particularly fantastic, but there are moments that are yeah, fantastic. definitely moments. Um, and we we did the story rewatch, so we started with Captain Avenger first, Captain uh, or Captain America first Avenger, mm. and and then Captain Marvel, and so we're doing it in chronological story order, which right. is really really cool. Yeah, I did that last summer. I have a sort of not quite similar situation, but my 11-year-old had sur- uh, ankle surgery. So she was laid up all summer and I have two younger kids and my parents were helping out. And I'm like, what do you watch when the age span is like eight to 68? So mm. we watched all of the Marvel movies mm. and it led to some fascinating conversations between three generations, particularly on the political ones, you know, like Winter Soldier or Civil War, and seeing how my kids growing up now view government or authority as opposed to my parents. It was fascinating. And, yeah. it, you know, it, comic books, I mean, that that's what the source material was exploring, right? It, it gives them something to to talk about those those things with even if they wouldn't sort of normally like be like oh grandma i read the washington post no but like they can get into it um and so watching i'll be curious sort of like what your kids reaction because like for example civil war they're like no way should donald trump have superheroes absolutely not (laughs) so yeah All right, guys, thank you so much. We really appreciate you making the time with everything people are juggling at home to talk with folks. I think people are really enjoying hearing from you guys right now. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys all so much. Uh, It was just awesome, like the amount of time you guys have been willing to spend with us and dealing with our uh, (laughs) difficulties and such. So I appreciate every one of you. Well, thanks for the evangelizing. (laughs) Thanks for... Thanks for caring about the show that we made that, you know, put our heart and souls into it's, uh, you know, that's, this is the best, most rewarding part is that, you know, we, we love this thing and, and to, you know, hear people who loved it too, you know, makes us feel pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. We have infinitely more hours of content than you guys. So I think that's like, we're, we're in. <laughs> oh my God. At the end, we'll calculate how many hours of podcasting we've spent as opposed to the running time of the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, be well. Um, stay safe. You thank, too. You thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks. We are always so grateful for the amount of time that the awesome cast and crew are willing to spend with us. Thank you again to Allison, Todd, Terry, and Sean. You guys are awesome, and we appreciate so much what you're willing to give back to the fans that love your show as almost as much as you do. Keep an ear out because our next episode covers 409, One Minute More, which is a doozy. On that one, we will have Hannah back, Brooke Williams. We'll also be joined by Terry Metalis, as well as the writer of that episode, Christopher Monfet. We're looking forward to discussing it, but we will also be bringing tissues because I'm not sure I'll even make it through the podcast itself without crying. So wish us luck. And until next time, we'll see you soon.